Yo, it's your man, Chris Mallon, and you're listening to Heart of the Game. Today, our guest has been an executive in both the NBA and NHL while working along some of the biggest stars. He served as vice president of marketing for the Tampa Bay Lightning and Philadelphia 76ers. Plus, he's got a title ring to show for it from the Lightning. Mark Gullett, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. And uh, Mark, from what I understand, what you were telling me that you're actually um, working from the back of um, a family member's house right now, and there's a thunderstorm rolling in. So we might hear some storm clouds coming in as, as we're talking today. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm uh, two doors up at my sister's house, sitting by the pool outside, um, enjoying this beautiful summer day. And uh, there is a few thunderstorms rolling through, uh, similar to South Florida. Lately, they've been rolling through about this time of the evening a little bit earlier in South Florida. Uh, so you might hear a crackle of thunder in the background. Okay. All right. Cool. And Mark, you have had a very interesting career and have appeared in roles with two major pro sports teams that would make any aspiring or current sports marketer very, very impressed. So how did you get started? Well, I was born in, no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was, I was in Tampa Bay, um, in the late 1900s and I, I had been in radio for 18 years and there was a lot of consolidation going on and I decided to, uh, it was, it was the right time for me to get out of radio. Um, I was in marketing and promotions in radio. So I just built a really nice house. I want to take some time to just relax and enjoy the house. Um, and I think I'd been home about three days and my phone rang and it was the then vice president of marketing for the Tempe Lightning said, hey, we want you to come to work for us. Because I had done a lot of radio promotions with them and interacted with them a lot and said, you know, we want to add so, an, another level to the promotions and marketing department. And I said, uh, you know, I, I've been working since I'm 15 years old. You know, I, I just really want to take some time off. So a couple of days later, he called again. And I, I told him the same story. And about three or four days later, he called a third time. And so I said, I said, all right, I'll, I'll come and meet with you, but I'm not really interested. So I went and I met with the then VP of marketing for the Tampa Bay Lightning, Sean Flynn, um, and Ron Campbell, who was then the team president. And I, I told him from the very beginning, I said, you know what? I went to one hockey game in Orlando, and I hated it. It's, it's guys just skating around, beating each other up. I, I, you know, and granted, I had the worst seats in the house, but I didn't like it at all. And the team president looked at me and he said, if you don't like hockey, as good a marketer as you are, in a non-traditional hockey market, you will find a way to market and sell this team. And I just looked at him like, are you crazy? But he was right, because it was like, you know, Tampa at that time was a non-traditional market. The team had been the marketplace five or six years. There were vouchers at every 7-Eleven. You know, there was no reason to buy a ticket. You could get a free ticket anywhere. Um, and I figured that out my first game when I was there. There were trailers on the plaza outside the arena, re people redeeming vouchers. And I just, I looked at them and I said, how are we ever going to sell a ticket if we're just giving away tickets? And that was a painful transition for the ownership group to just give away tickets. And this was 
early like 2000, 2001 um, to just, you know, giving away tickets to us. Like it's, it's going to be painful. There's going to be empty seats and there's going to be a, and I hate to use jargons, you know, there's going to be a pain point that ownership's going to have to get through that if we're going to create value for this product, any product, it can't be free. You've got to pay for it. Disney does a great job, you know, with no discounts, no discounts, no yeah. discounts. And, um, you know, and with, with Tampa, it was the same way. We got to get rid of the free tickets. We got to get rid of the free vouchers. Um, and it was painful, but we did it. Um, you know, and of course we won a Stanley cup and that helped. And we went on, you know, we were sold out, I think four or five years in a row, every single game. Um, and then of course Tampa went through a ownership change and there were a lot of employees let go. Uh, one of the things to, to be expected in sports when there's an ownership change, everybody wants to bring in their own people. Yeah. Unfortunately, this ownership change was, you know, we need to save money. So there were a lot of people let go in the period of a week. Um, but I ended up back in Philadelphia with the 76ers, which is where I moved from originally. And my son was born in Philly. So at the end of the day, it all worked out. You know, you brought up a really good point there about, uh, giving away stuff for free because you really end up devaluing your product a lot when you do that. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, Disney is a great example. Um, and you'll hear me bring them up a lot from a marketing standpoint. Um, but Disney is a great example. I mean, they used to never discount and I'm not in Florida now, uh, but besides a residence program, Florida would never discount a ticket. The Disney would never discount a ticket. So, you know, once you start just giving away the product and fans are used to getting that product for free, it's extremely difficult for any product, whether it's eyeglasses, sun care, whatever, to now get your consumers to begin paying for that product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and of course, I know you from the Philadelphia 76ers. You hired me at the 76ers. So, you know, of course, <laughs> of course, when I was working on this list of like, who, who do I have on the show? I was like, well, I got to have Mark Gullett on the show. I mean, the guy hired me through the Sixers when I was there. Uh, one of the most coolest sports experiences of my life. So, again, thank you for that. I know I've told you that many times before, but thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. Can I, can I tell a Chris Mallon story? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, so when I hired you at the time, at the time – you had a Southern accent and I'm from the South. Uh-huh. I was, you know, born in Atlanta, Georgia, raised in North Carolina, but you know, my 18 years of radio moved around the country. I eventually lost my Southern accent, but when I hired you, you had a very deep Southern accent, right? Coming from, I think, Virginia. Yeah. I, so I, I grew up outside of the DC area, but I bounced all around the country uh, working in for different sports teams, taking any job I could get my hands on, like doing all the dirty work. And I had worked, uh, went to college at Barton College in Wilson, but I also worked for NC State University, which is your alma mater. Uh, so uh, there's that connection there. There's, yeah, so that's, that's where it came from. Right. So I hired you based on your brilliance, right? I, I saw, <laughs> no, no, seriously, no, seriously. I saw an aspiring young man that, like saw no boundaries, like this guy can get it done. Right. And so I hired you and I get called in like two days later and I won't name the person, 
of my boss and said, what are you thinking? I said, what are you talking about? And they're like, you hired this guy. He's, where's he from? I'm like, well, he's like from Virginia. He's got a Southern accent. I said, I'm from the South. I can get past that. And it's like, I hope everybody else can get past that too. Um, and I said, just, just, just wait and see what he does. Judge him by his works. Um, and you proved yourself to be amazing. Um, you were absolutely one of the best hires I'd made, you know, and I was happy to defend a Southern accent, having been a guy with a Southern accent and now you have none at all. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you say that. Cause I, 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 I like the Philly accent that I kind of developed when I lived there and I, I was in uh, I was in target the other day and, and for whatever reason, people always want to talk to either me or my wife, wherever we go. And this guy stopped to talk to me and he said, Hey, you're not from around here, are you? And, and he said, I think you have a little, he said, he sounds like you have a Southern accent. And I told him, I was like, well, man, it's been years since I've heard that. So thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's a little bit funny how some people in the North, like, uh, and I lived in the Northeast for a long time, but it's funny how some people in the Northeast, like, that's almost like a badge of shame or something. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so I would encourage I would encourage people, even if you have a southern accent and you're highly intelligent, you can do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you're you're working for the Lightning. You're working for the 76ers, and of course, you know you're at a very high level there. You're vice president of both those teams, and uh, before you got to that point. You know, you stated you started working pretty much when you were fit started when you're 15 years old. What were some of your inspirations and and are some of your inspirations? You know, I wow, nobody's ever asked me that. You know, I I grew up in a very poor family in the rural south. Uh, my first job was picking tomatoes with migrant workers at age 15 in the summertime, um, which is tough, dirty, backbreaking work. Um, and then I went to pre-med at NC State and uh, dropped out, much to my uh, parents' disappointment. Uh, both my brothers and sisters are in medicine. And I sort of fell into radio um, on a dare, you know, that somebody bet me I couldn't get a, a job at this radio station in Charlotte. And I went and got it. And I became a turnaround um, startup guy in radio. So if you had a radio station that was in trouble or you wanted to start a new radio station, um, I worked for some great radio brands, WRFX in Charlotte, the Fox in Atlanta, WRFX in Cleveland, Q102 in Philadelphia during their rebrand. Um, and then, you know, one of the greatest startups ever, Wild 98.7 in Tampa, <clears throat> which was just an amazing startup. Um you know, so I think you follow your passions. And then, you know, with all the consolidation of radio, to me, it was just it was just a good time to get out. And I never intended to get into sports. However, I do love sports. Um, but that meeting, you know, with Ron Campbell and Sean Flynn, where he just said, hey, if you can figure out how to sell hockey in Tampa and you don't like it, you'll figure out a way. And that just, it struck me as, sort of backwards thinking and non-traditional thinking. And that's sort of how I focused, you know, marketing campaigns since those conversations 
for example, in Philadelphia, the Together We Build campaign. Yeah. Nobody wants nobody wants to admit they're rebuilding, right? Yeah. Fans fans know you're rebuilding. They yeah. don't sugarcoat it. Don't put lipstick on a pig. You know you're rebuilding. So why not admit it? So that Together We Build campaign where you guys were out spray painting blocks and all yeah. that crazy all that crazy stuff that you guys did. I mean that won three Addy Awards. And the attendance went up. It didn't go down. And I think that was the honesty coming from the team. You know, it was an internal message that we're rebuilding. And we turned that internal message into a consumer-facing message, you know, because that was the honesty. And that was that's what Philadelphia is all about. So, you know, a, a couple things from that that really struck me is, you know, I'm, I'm a marketing professional that's growing and learning during this process is your approach that you mentioned there. So, so the authentic part of it, the real part of it, which I think a lot of people really appreciate when they see marketing because they see so much bullshit that's out there. And, you know, when you see something that, that is like in your face, like, Hey, yeah, it's happening. This is who we are. Uh, I remember working on that together. We build campaign and, and I, I, you know, and then later the trust the process campaign and it, it grew. And I think people really appreciated the honesty. And I, I think it, it, uh, it resonated with people in the city who were fans. And um, yeah, that, that was pretty awesome. Genuine, authentic, be who you are and be real. Don't, don't, everybody knows the team's going through a rebuilding process. Everybody yeah. knows when the team's horrible. I mean, when the Lightning were horrible, trust me, there were some horrible years in the Lightning before we won the Stanley Cup and went on to be sold out five years in a row. And granted, after even after we, we won the Stanley Cup, there was a lockout the year after, right? So imagine, like, you win the Stanley Cup. Now you got this pandemic Man. that you got to deal with. So imagine you win the Stanley Cup. You go into a lockout year. You're trying to keep all those fans engaged. And trust me, we did everything from building replica Stanley Cup sandcastles on the beach for fans, private fan parties, you know, everything we could to keep all those fans engaged. Because so, we needed them when we came back after the lockout because we'd won the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. So imagine winning the Stanley Cup and you go into a lockout season. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the salespeople were freaking out and we're like, Hey guys, we're going to keep it. We got to keep the fans engaged. They will, will be back. And they did come back. Mm-hmm. So one of the things too, that I remember about you as a marketer is the level of creativity. And I remember you always talking about how creativity is a very, very valuable trait for somebody in marketing. Um, and I would always wonder, because you had some unique ideas. How, how did you, and they weren't gimmicky either, right? They, they weren't like the slapstick right. gimmicky, like, hello, sports fans. You know, it wasn't that stuff. It was real. <laughs> uh, so what, what what were some of the things that you looked to to come up with some of those ideas? You know, I think you, you have to look within the organization. I mean, the Together We Build was actually written on the whiteboard. Uh, we hired a branding agency. And the first meeting... Bill walks and he looks and it's like, I had been taking notes of everything the coaches and the general managers were saying. And it was like, we're going to build this together. We're going to do, we're going to do this together. We're going to build something special, et cetera, et cetera. And I written down all their comments on a big whiteboard in the office. And I just 
we would stare at it for hours a day. And, and Bill came in from the branding agency and he looked at it. And this was our first meeting before we ever hired him. He looked at it like, you don't need us. It's right there. It's right there on the wall. Hmm. He said, you wrote it right there. Together we built. So we hired him actually to do the visuals. But I think it's, it's A, it's being real, but B, it's being willing to take a chance and think out of the box. I mean, the scene Stamkos campaign at the Tampa Bay Lightning, they're still talking about today. And it's 10, 12, 15 years later. Um, and that was, you know, we were draft. We knew we had the number one draft. And, and I went to the general manager and I said, Jay Peaster at the time. And I said, Jay, I said, are we going to draft Steven Stamkos? And he said, yes, we are. And I said, can we do a campaign just to educate people on who he is? We won't say we're drafting him. We'll just say somehow we'll come up with a campaign just to educate fans on who he is, how incredible Steven Stamkos is. And he said, sure. And our CEO at the time said, go for it. Um, so we came up with a campaign called Scene Stamkos. You can Google it, go to YouTube. There are videos, images. And we posted it was in a, a font like um, Dr. Seuss. And it was just blue. Scene Stamkos, question mark, scenestamkos.com. It was a simple website that just showed videos of this kid, 18-year-olds from Canada, playing hockey. And it was all over. And then we did a ton of grassroots marketing with T-shirts and flyers and bumper stickers and just a very simple grassroots Radio S campaign. And, and when this kid showed up in town, and thank God, you know, he performed like we thought he would. <laughs> and he went on to become the, the captain of the Tampa Lightning. But it was it was a huge risk. And, you know, Sean Henry, who's now, you know, the president of the Tampa Lightning, I mean, the National Predators, Sean just gave us carte blanche to, to do whatever we needed to do and make it happen, which was amazing. Um, so I think it's, you know, you got to take risk. And it's like, especially today, you have to take risk and be willing to, some of those are going to fail. I mean, we had some campaigns with the lightning that failed, you know, the V blast based on Vinny, you know, that, that became an in-house joke and we still laugh about it today, but it's like, we took a, we took a risk and we did it, but we knew when to cut our losses and turn it off and, you know, move on to the next thing. So what, what was the, the V blast? What, what was that one? because <laughs> i you gotta bring it up we gotta talk about what was that all right one? so so yeah because i i am actually proud of my failures i have a lot of failures as, as much as i have successes i have failures so you see the, and this was back before the internet and social media was very prominent so you see ads all the time for drugs that are supposed to be sexual stimulants, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we came up with a logo based off looking at all those. They all look a little bit similar called V-Blast. You can figure it out. V-B-L-A-S-T. <laughs> well, it was oh, for Vinny. <laughs> okay. So it was so it was for Vinny LeCavier, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. At the time. So it was V-Blast. And then there were some like performance standards listed underneath it and it looked like one of those ads that you would see and i think that lasted and it was not like in our generic media it was placed in some weird places i mean our placement was you know it was like in the help wanted sections of the creative loafing or whatever it, you know it was placed in some weird sections 
so it would be appropriate. And that <laughs> one like never went off the ground. I still get, I, I still to today get, you know, Instagram photographs of that saying, you know, don't have one that didn't work. <laughs> Uh, But you know what is really cool about that? And you mentioned it earlier. Don't be afraid to fail. And you got to swing for the fences because it, and I agree. I think that's a great lesson for everybody is that if you are, if you're not afraid to fail and, and, and you don't put yourself out there, then you, you know, You'll never succeed, anyways, because you're you're gonna mess up every once in a while. But you gotta swing for the fences, otherwise, no, otherwise you're not gonna have any success. Yeah, especially in today's environment. I mean, you gotta be a little bit crazy, a little bit off the wall. Now, I take that back a step. You gotta be authentic, true to who you are, you know, genuine, and that's why the V blast didn't work. It's just, it wasn't genuine, it wasn't authentic, but that's why you know the scene Stamkos work and it wasn't really tied to the brand of the Tampa Bay Lightning at all. Eventually people realized it was, you know, once they started talking about the draft, but the first three or four weeks, you know, nobody knew. So one of the things too, that always sticks out to me is um, when, when I was looking to move on from sports and, and do marketing, but outside of sports, it really resulted from me going to these networking events and I would talk to other, other marketers who weren't in sports and they would tell me, oh, sports marketing is not real marketing. It's not real marketing. And that was something I, I heard in some of these jobs I interviewed for. What, what do you think about that? What, is sports marketing different from marketing any other business? Yes, it is. I would say sports marketing, it's extremely difficult. You can't control the product. As a marketer, I always wanted to work for Disney. Mm. You know, I interviewed with Disney several times. They put you through the ringer, like 18 interviews a day. With Disney, you know what the product is, right? It's yeah. happy. It's happy every day. It's an awesome product, right? When you're a sports marketer, your product changes every year. One day you're number one and you're winning and your fans love you and the beer is cold and the hot dogs are awesome. The next year, and you're a don't genius. Draft. You're a genius. Exactly. Yeah. You're a genius. No matter what you do. Yeah. You can roll out the worst ad campaign ever, and you're a genius because yeah. the team's winning. The next year, your team is losing. Your ad campaign sucks, if I can say that. Your ad campaign <laughs> yeah. sucks. The beer is hot, and the hot dogs are horrible. You know, so as a marketer, you always want to work for somebody with a consistent product. Well, if you work in sports year to year, your product is not going to be consistent. To me, that is a much more difficult situation as a marketer than to go, I'm going to market Warby Parker glasses and the product is the same every single year. You know, with sports, you trade away the number one player, you trade away a fan's favorite player. Man, that puts marketing in a very difficult situation. You know, they have to overcome that and still sell the same number of tickets as last year or more. There was a moment where uh, Shana Booker, who was the, the marketing manager for the Philadelphia 76ers and, and myself, um, who was I, I was the coordinator. Uh, I remember hearing from you and from Shana. MCW could be traded. Michael Carter Williams could be traded. And we had just finished all of this Michael Carter Williams stuff, all of these radio spots, 10, 15 second, 30 spots. And 
Then here comes the word Michael Carter Williams is traded. And man, we're like scrambling to get all the MCW stuff done. Like we're talking like months worth of work, just gone right then and, and there. And, and it happens. And it's like, I, I could tell you he's not going to be traded because that's what I'm being told. And the reality is they're just not going to tell me he's being traded. Or yeah. if, if you're being honest and you trust the people within your organization, somebody says, hey, Mark, stop the MCW work. And that's how you have to stop the MCW work, right? Um, but it's, and there again, I go back to, you know, when I got Tampa Bay Lightning, a, a, a lot of the marketing was built around players. And one of the things that we talked about was, you know, let's have three, four, five players. And now you'll see it. You definitely saw it at the Lightning. And you did it to some extent with the 76ers. Is there three, four, five, six players in advertising? You know, and now, of course, yeah. there's less print advertising. Yeah. Now in this new world. Yeah. Um, and yeah, print has really gone by the wayside. And it seems it's, it's amazing. It Can I like... tell you a quick story about print? Yeah. Go ahead. So, uh, Adam Aaron was when the new ownership came in the 76ers, they hired Adam Aaron as the you know interim CEO. Yeah. And on his and on his first day, Adam came into my office and shut the door. And I had no idea who the man was. And he looked at me. We we're in the process of developing a plan to transition everything from traditional print, et cetera, to digital. And he, he walks in, he looks at me, he sits down, and he looks at me little tiny office so he's no you know three feet in front of my face adam yeah. looks at me and goes what is the circulation of the philadelphia inquirer on sunday and i said i don't know 460 something 450 and he gets up and he walks out and he goes next door to my boss's office says we need to fire your vp of marketing she said why that he doesn't know the exact circulation of your Sunday newspaper. <laughs> 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 so uh, he had a real he had a real hard time a few weeks later when I said the reason I don't know the circulation is I'm proposing we move everything to digital and cancel the half a million dollars we're spending in traditional newspaper. Wow. <laughs> Wow, we were spending a half a million in true. Wow, that okay. See, that's amazing because today, like everybody's getting off newspaper. If you're not already off newspaper, you're way behind. So you were you were ahead of the time there, uh, going to digital. We were, and we were one of the first teams to take eighty percent of our traditional media budget and move it to digital retargeting, SEM, SEO, and we could track the results i mean you know i had a, a dashboard on my computer and every morning i was very anal about tracking the results what's working what's not you know our goal was to own the nba research showed that people search 2.7 websites before they purchase tickets on the open market mm-hmm. so when you search 76ers tickets we wanted to own three of the five compositions at least one of those organically and if not two and wanted to be a paid ad. Because at that time, people didn't know what was a paid ad and what wasn't a paid ad. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because it wasn't marked at the time with uh, with paid right. or ad. Or it was marked and people just didn't notice it. It came up as a result. So just clicking, you know, so we were 
one of the first NBA teams to just move all that money. And what was great was you could track the ROI. Yeah. So, you know what, being a trendsetter is, is pretty cool. Uh, an early adopter. And, you know, I remember learning one thing from you too, when every time we ran a campaign, we would track the results on the website and the amount of calls that were coming in uh, to, uh, for, for, for season tickets or single game or, or, or um, uh, like 10 game packs. And uh, then we could see from there, based on benchmarks, how well an ad campaign was performing. If it was outside the, the range of, of norm. Uh, and I, I always thought that was cool. So that helped me out in the future when I'm sitting in this room and we're meeting with WPLG down here in South Florida and uh, across the table from me is the marketing guy for WPLG and everybody's throwing all this stuff around there. And he says, you know what? I'm not sure my out of home campaign works. I just don't, I just don't know if it's worth the money. So everybody's throwing their two cents around. So I asked them, well, what was your web traffic like before you ran the campaign? What, what was it like? Cause your goal was to increase web traffic. What was your web traffic like? And then he said, you know what? You got me there because I, I didn't, I didn't check that. I didn't have a benchmark for what my normal traffic was. And you, you can't know if your campaign's successful or not, unless you have those benchmarks. You know, let me just say this about out of home. While we did move all that money out of print and television into digital, the one thing, thing we kept, and part of it was because of my radio background, was we kept some radio, very efficient, and we kept digital out of home. And we went to a campaign where it was like Sixers, Sixers play Boston Friday night at 7. Sixers play Boston Friday night tonight yeah. you know, and tomorrow. And then, as you well know, at the end of the game, those digital boards all were switched to put up the scores because I think you did that. I, I did that, yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the game, we put up the scores and nobody else was doing that. I mean, we, we found a way to use digital effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think the way we did it at the time, you know, now digital outdoor will show you when traffic going to slow up in front of you. But at the yeah. time you would not be driving home from the game. And if you left early, you would see the score on the outdoor. So I remember that very well. And I also remember that I had to sign basically my life away on some paperwork that if I put some kind of vulgar messaging up on the <laughs> billboard, that I, I would be sued for any, everything I had, which wasn't much, but you know, and then I'd lose my job and, and I couldn't share that password with anybody. Uh, but yeah, so I, I do remember that very well. Uh, and I, I always thought that was cool. By the way, plug for out of home since most of my listeners don't know I work in the out of home advertising industry, but um, uh, digital billboards, Mark, you know, I had a, you were ahead of the time on that because digital billboard study just came out last month that um, they have the greatest, one of the greatest ad recalls of any ad medium for digital billboards. Pretty cool. I love digital. I love digital billboards. You can change them on the fly. If fans are driving to the game, and they're on their route onto the game. You can say you're 15 minutes to the, you know, the Sixers game. I mean, there's there's so many uses for digital outdoor that you can just change them, you know, every minute. That concludes the first part of our episode with Mark Gullett. Stay tuned for the second part as Mark continues to talk about his incredible experiences of working in professional sports. And be sure to hit that subscribe button to check out all of the new Heart of the Game episodes as soon as they are released.